0: Bibles again this morning and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter ten. As we followed something of the what's been called here in this book, something of the work of revival in the hearts of God's people, it's been kind of a process of seeing what's happened here, as we saw back in, in chapter chapter eight, the beginning of, of these people that come before the Lord to hear the word of God proclaimed, to hear it taught walking in obedience to that law. Then in verse in chapter 9, we saw the great confession, the glory of God, and also their response to that. And we're going to look at this morning from chapter 10, something of the details of that response. It's the heart of this, what we call a covenant renewal. There's a renewal on their part of walking in the covenant of God as was given to their forefathers, particularly the Mosaic Law as given to, to Moses. That's one thing to... To recognize need in our lives. To recognize that things need to be changed. You know, we can all kind of go through those seasons in our lives. Can we not? Where we just look and say, you know, I look at my life can I can see a lot right now that doesn't seem to be right. I I need to be doing something different. But it's another thing to get to the particulars, isn't it? To address, the, identify the changes that need to be made and willing to make those steps that we need to make. And we're going to look this morning at the, the commitment that was made by these people as they become very specific. We recognize we that we need to come back to God. We need to renew our walk with God. But what's it going to mean? What efforts are they going to make? What are the intents of their heart as they look to the, to the things that God would have them to do? So look with me here in chapter 10. Back up actually to verse 9, verse 38. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement, or some uh, translations use the word covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. Now, on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekaliah, and Zedekiah. And I'm not going to read all through these verses. Just note with me as I just quickly direct you through verse 8. The last part, it says, these were the priests. So that was one group. Of those who had signed on here. Verse 9. And the Levites. Jeshua the son of Azaniah. Benaiah the sons of Hanadah. And Cadmiel. And also their brothers. Verse 10. Look down to verse 14. The leaders or the nobles of the people. And the list of names of those who were there. Now all the way down to verse 28. Now the rest of the people. The priests. The Levites. The gatekeepers. The singers. The temple servants. And all those who had separated themselves from "...from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding." In other words, those who were old enough to understand what was transpiring here. Verse 29. "...are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses." God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land, or take our daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops. The seventh year, and the exact and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offerings, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people in order that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our fathers' households, at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law, and in order that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons, And of our cattle. And the firstborn. Of our herds and of our flocks. As it is written in the law. For the priests who are ministering. In the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough. Our contributions. The fruit of every tree. The new wine and the oil to the priest. At the chambers of the house of our God. And the tithe of our grounds. To the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes. In all the rural towns. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our Lord, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine and the oil, to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our God. There was a book that came out a few years ago, some of you may remember, It's entitled It Takes a Village. You may remember that book by a former first lady, Hillary Clinton, and I didn't read the book, I just kind of had the synopsis of it explained or read somewhere, that you know, basically talking about the responsibility of, of training the next generation is more than just a family, that it's, it's a community, it's a larger scale than just an individual group of people, and there are some principles there I think that are important. Uh, again, I didn't read the book, so I'm not going to bash it. I'm not going to endorse it. I just know it's a title of a book that I was familiar with. But there's an element of truth to that principle, certainly within the Christian community. It takes a community. It takes a, a village. It takes more than just uh, us in our own little individualistic world or us or even our own little cells of our own family, but it takes the community of God's people for, for growth within the context as the people of God. And this morning I want to see how how the community experiences the work of God in their heart, not just individually, but as a community, we witness God doing a work. And the fact of the matter is that God does put us in community, doesn't he? When God called the nation of Israel, he called forth a mass of of people, a community. When Christ, when Paul speaks of the church in the New Testament, he speaks of us being members of the body of Christ and members one of another, we are in the context of a community. of a community. So God is the one who has put us in this context and so we can expect a gracious work, a work of God's Spirit, not just in the context of one individual or personally, although this is important, but in the context of community. And we see that here taking place as this community comes together with this commitment. First of all, we see that it is a community community. A community of the willing, a community of the willing. I don't want to minimize the reality or the importance of what some have called the uh, experiencing a personal revival. You know, I've had some some pamphlets and things that thought, you know, you can experience your own personal revival. And the fact of the matter is, we 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 need to do that because we ebb and flow in our walk with the Lord. Those old times, we look in our personal walk with God and say, Lord, I need to be revived. I need an experience of work, an experience of grace in my own heart personally. I don't want to minimize that. However, it's refreshing to see in the context of what we see here in this chapter, a widespread involvement. A widespread involvement in the work of, of this covenant renewal. Look, we saw back... All the way back in chapter eight again, chapter eight, nine, and ten. Something this section of this of this renewal here, this revival, the revival, of the Spirit of God. We saw in chapter eight there was Ezra the scribe and the priest back in verses one and two of chapter eight. That they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the books of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel, and then the Levites were involved in the process. in verses four and seven of chapter eight. Nehemiah is mentioned in verse nine of chapter eight. The people are mentioned. The role that the people all have in this this renewal, this coming before the Lord to hear the Word of God read and proclaimed. In chapter 9, we see it was the people who were assembled together. And the Levites, those leading in worship. Chapter 10, we see here what's given to us as a representative list of the leaders of this nation. The representative list of the of the priests, the Levites, of the families is given here in chapter 10. Much of those names that we didn't read, but it goes on to say in verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers. There's more than just they are written here, but there's there's a number. There's a, there's a widespread involved in this community. community That's become a community of the will. And what I want us to emphasize on this particular point is that it is a community effort. It's a community work from top to bottom there is the involvement of the community Nehemiah given to us in verse 1 Nehemiah the governor the leader of the people the priests verses verse 8 or verses actually 1 through 8 the Levites in verse 9 the leaders the nobles of the people mentioned there in verse 14 and then verses 28 29 again the rest of the people. It's a widespread involvement. It's a widespread movement of the Spirit of God in the context of this community. What does it say to us? You see, there was none that considered themselves to be above such a thing. You have Nehemiah from the top. But neither were there any that that were deemed insignificant. There's an awareness here that in the context of this community... In the context of a community, I have an individual and a personal responsibility for the health of the community. There's the individuals coming and assuming their personal responsibility toward God and also their responsibility toward one another. Each considering his duty before God to acknowledge his or her sin. Not coming and pointing their fingers as, here's the problem, the farmers, our forefathers, the problem is the sins of the, the problem is the leadership. You know, it's not, no, it's all coming in saying, we all acknowledge here, we are all signing on here. We're all acknowledging our personal responsibility and our role here. Each recognizing their responsibility to the community to lead in personal renewal. You know, it's a wonderful testimony of God's grace at work here, isn't it? You know, this isn't something that a few people, few people start and then all of a sudden it's like it's not a psychological experience that's talking on the bandwagon here you know what we're talking about here is a work of the spirit of god where the spirit of god is is free to work through a people that have been prepared been prepared by the word of god as we saw in, in the earlier chapters here god works sovereignly but at the same time there is a people here that's ready to be renewed in their walk you know how often has it been the case That there might be a desire among a group of people for a movement of God in their midst. And many times you have it shortchanged by those who have no spiritual interest. It's not a priority to them. You know, there will be one group that, yes, we want to to see the Lord do mighty and great things here. And at the same time, within the conscience of that group, those who are the unconcerned, uninterested. You know, there have been those occasions. There are places where you have pastors with a great vision, a great desire to see God do, do a mighty work. And you have an unresponsive people. And on the other hand, you have in cases, you have people who are hungry and desiring and longing for there to be a, a work of the Spirit of God in their midst, in the context of their community in their church. And you, and you have a pastor that has no vision or no capacity to, to communicate that. What a joy here to see in in this chapter from top to bottom. That there is a unity of heart, a unity in spirit here of their desire to be renewed in each one. Whether it be the top man, Nehemiah the governor or some of the more insignificant people that we don't even have their names given to us. They recognize their responsibility within the context of a community to be a people longing for working for, desiring a renewal of the Spirit of God. Let me ask you, are you a help or are you a hindrance? Are you a help? Are you a hindrance for God to move freely within our midst? Are you doing those things that foster a spiritual appetite? I know know the response. The response is, hey, God's free to do with me whatever He wants to do. I'm I'm excited. Yeah, let him work with me. Let him do what he wants to do. But let me ask you, are you are you preparing your heart? Are you preparing your life for such an event? Where do the where do the fires of God's revival so often fall? It's where you have laid the groundwork where there's been the the kindling, if I might follow the picture even a little bit further here, the flames of the fires of revival fall where there's the kindling of a prepared heart, where there's a heart that's been in the Word of God, where there's a heart that's been before the throne of God, where there's a heart that has a sense of its own need. Are you fostering that? I understand that revival is a sovereign work of God ultimately, but at the same time, where has God moved? He has moved where there has been a people prepared. He's prepared people through prayer. He's prepared people through fellowship with other believers. He prepares people through even the reading of good Christian books and biographies where you where you see the the work of God in the hearts of brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we being prepared? I mean it's one thing to sit back, Lord, you're afraid to do what you want to do, and I'm not going to do anything. But it's another thing, it's Lord, I want I want you to work and I'm going to I'm going to give myself to these means of grace that you've ordained, those things where you do you do allow your your fire of revival to fall. I want to be a part of that. So it's a community of the willing, not just the top, not just the bottom, but from top to bottom each recognizing their role their responsibility of renewing their walk with God. What it says in verse 29 it says that they are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to what? To walk in God's law. Which brings us to the second point here. It is a community of the word. It is a community of the word. The commitment of God's people becomes very practical here. They are going to take particular steps of action not meaningless activity we don't need just things to do. We just don't. We don't need like let's get our calendars out. Let's do something on Monday night, Tuesday night, whatever. We don't need just activity. We're not talking about that. We're talking about those things that are meaningful to them, and it's activity that is according to what? It is according to God's instruction. In other words, the activity that they are becoming involved in are the things that God has already revealed to them that they're to be doing. It's not something new here. Let's do something new for the Lord. No. It's simply purposing to go back to the Word of God, to His law. Note the emphasis here. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to what? To the law of God. God. We've separated ourselves into the law of God. We're going to live by the law of God. Verse 29, we just read, but again, joining with their kinsmen and nobles and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in what? God's law. Verse 34. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood upon the priests, the Levites, and the people in order that they might bring to the house of our God according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as what? It is written in the law. So what's the point here? This is a community. It's going to be a community of the word of God. People of the book. We want to be people of the book. That's what they're doing here. So, what is the first order of God's law? Well, the first order of God's law is to deal with the issue of sin. It's the purpose of the law. Exposes sin, right? What's the first order of action that we see here that takes place? They begin to address issues of sin to which they have become easily easy prey they've yielded to. So they deal with issues of sin that are common to them. One is verse 30. They deal with issues of intermarrying with pagan cultures. That we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What's that from? Well, it's from the law of God. Look over in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and following. It's the law of God. To the people of God. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. Nor you, say you take their daughters for your sons. Why? God prejudice against these people? Isn't this, isn't this a way that we should bring these people into the kingdom of God? And he says in verse 4, here's why. Because they will turn your sons away from following me. That's why you don't intermarry. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. In the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. That's why. So they dealt with that was one. They had to, they separating themselves from the people, but also they were they were no longer going to intermarry with the, the pagan cultures. And this is listen, this ain't got anything to do with race. It's got to do with faith. This is a religious separation. This is a separation based upon those who are inside the kingdom and the community of God and those who are outside. There's to be no intermingling. You don't do that. In the New Testament principle, marriage. You marry in the Lord. There's no fellowship between darkness and light. So verse 31, another area they dealt with. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we're not going to buy it on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops every seventh year and the exaction of every debt. The disregard for the Sabbath that had crept into their, their minds. They just treated it just like any other business day. So people come into Jerusalem just like any other pagan city on the Sabbath day and they would sell their their wells, ply their trade. So we're not going to do that anymore. They're going to come. They can come they want to. In fact, you find eventually that they close the gates. They can't even come in. We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to trade with income. they can come accept their little tents or whatever. We're not buying. We're not going to disregard the Sabbath day any longer based on what? Exodus chapter 23, verse 10. Actually, this is the second principle, the principle of the seventh year. Of course, you know what the Sabbath day is. That's from the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, right? But look also, the principle of the seventh year, 23, verse 10. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its fields. But On the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive, olive grove. Six days you are to do your work. On the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your donkey may rest. The son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. What's the point here? What's the Sabbath day do? Well it is a day of rest, but what it does is it also to observe the Sabbath day as given to the law of God was to was a visible demonstration of a life of faith. So are you gonna trust God? Are you gonna trust God? here's the way to demonstrate trust and faith in God. I'm gonna pull out of the rat race for a day. Because I know I can give myself to doing and doing and doing and think I I can't afford to take Sunday off. He said, Yes, you can, if you're living a life of faith in in God. To look to him and say, Lord, you give me six days to work and you've blessed that. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to set aside a day for you on the Sabbath. And actually, it was in the law of God. But what about this year? Same thing. We can't go a year without planting our vineyards. We can't go a year without planting our crops. We can't do that. God said, do it. He's responsible to take care of you. And so that was an area, too, that they just recognized that hey, we're going back to the Word of God. We're going to be the people of the Word. God said, do this. To regard the Sabbath day, we're going to regard the Sabbath day as holy. We're going to recognize these holy days. And the seventh year, we're going to let our lands lie. We're not going to. And we're going to. Those who have debts, we're going to cancel those debts. Every seventh year. And then we see in verse 32, we placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly to one one-third of a shekel to the service of the house of our Lord. There had been a great neglect of the temple provisions. We're not going to do that. We're going to make this a priority. Want the prophets there in the, uh, the exile, I recognize, hey, talks about you've got your nice panel houses. you say We don't have time to do anything for the house of the Lord. Can't do it. We don't have the resources. This is why your crops are failing. It becomes a priority, the things of the house of the Lord. And so, Exodus chapter 30, verse 13. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. So, when we get over here to verse 32... We placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly to one-third of a shekel. Uh-oh. Compromise. Right? Because the law said you'd are to, you're to, you're to have half a shekel. So we placed ourselves under obligation to contribute a third of a shekel. Why? Probably just as a recognition for the, the poverty of the people. This is where we are. We'll, we can give. We can we we'll place ourselves to give a third of a shekel for the service of the Lord our God. What's the point here? The people guided by the law, by the word of God. What was the sin of their forefathers? What had happened? What did they see take place? Look back again in chapter nine. Look at chapter nine, verse sixteen. Our fathers they acted arrogantly. They became stubborn. They would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen. They did not remember your wonderful deeds which you had done. They became stubborn. Chapter 9, verse 26. They became disobedient and rebelled against you and they cast your law behind their backs. Verse 29, chapter 9. They acted arrogantly and they did not listen to your commandments but they sinned against your ordinances by which if a man observes them, he'll live. Remember that qualification, don't we? and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and they would not listen listen we learned one thing from our forefathers we're not going to disregard the law of God we are going to live by God's word a people of the word but it's not a list of man-made rules without any warrant it's, a, it's just simply going back what has God said what is the instruction that God has given to us that we will do listen We want to be a part of, of God's work? They must be a people of the book. Devoted to His Word. Get into the Word. Learn what it says. Purpose to obey. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait wait, wait, wait. We're not under law. This is the age of grace. What possible application can this have to us? We are in grace with the responsibility of walking in obedience to God's moral law as revealed to us in the New Testament as well as the Old. We're not under law as a concept of trying to to obey a law, a civil law or a ceremonial law that brings us into relation with God. No, but that wasn't the purpose of the law in the Old Testament either. It revealed to them their sin. And part of the Old Testament law was this... You had all these things you're supposed to be doing. And then look in verse 33 of chapter 10. you had the They recognize there that the things, the holy things for the sin offering to make atonement for Israel in the midst of all these things that we're doing, all these laws that God has given, all this form and ritual and things that we're supposed to be doing, there's this one thing we're supposed to do and that is every year we come and there's a payment for sin. So if you obey the law to the letter way you're supposed to, you still come and you make a sacrifice for your sin. So they recognized. There's no, no justification by obedience to the law. You don't be right with God by obedience to the law. That wasn't in the Old Testament. So they recognize that we we do these things and we recognize that we need to come before God with this sacrifice. But there's another danger that we face. We need to be careful that when we think about well, walking in the Word, walking obedience to the Word, that we don't fall into the trap of legalism. The trap of thinking, well, if I, if I do this, you know, give me a list. And we need to understand that our hearts our hearts gravitate to that. We gravitate to, give me a list of things that I can do and I'll do it. I mean, it's pretty crystal clear. I can do that, give me a list. And so we gravitate to a legalistic mindset. What do we mean by legalism? Three aspects of legalism. Number one is this, justification by works. That's one type of legalism. That simply means that we believe a person believes that they do enough good deeds that it will warrant God's favor, warrant heaven. That's one. That's one type of legalism that we people believe that they are made right with God because of the, the things that they do. Certainly, an anti-Christian, anti-biblical concept, but it's a concept that many people leave by, live by. And if we're not careful, we'll gravitate to that. The Second thing, a second type of. of of legalism is sanctification by works. In other words, I recognize the fact that I can't be made right with God because I've done anything good. However, once I become a Christian, then it's all up to me. It's my power. It's the it's my responsibility to live as God's called me to live. And so I, I give it everything that I've got. But the truth of the matter, that's not a biblical principle either. We talked about it on, on Wednesday nights. It's this process called sanctification. It is the, it is a work of the grace of God can't live a life that's good enough to bring any degree of improvement. It's not going to happen. But it's something that we gravitate to. Again, give me the list. Give me a list of all the commandments of the New Testament. I'm going to start taking these things on here. We can't do it. Then there's a third type of legalism. That is that we begin to make biblical additions. In other words, things that the Scripture did not address. We begin to think, well, this is true spirituality. We go beyond what the Scripture teaches like have some type of a, a higher understanding or a higher view of things. And so people begin to make all types of addition things that have nothing to do with, with being right with God. Those things that Paul says in Colossians, they have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion. But they're not profitable. You know, don't touch these things. Don't handle these things. We start, laying, we start making laws about things which there's, Scripture doesn't address, which I read this morning in the Sunday School about the, was a Reformed Baptist church. We're not going to be put under bondage to those things. The scripture doesn't address, you know, the concept in circles. You know, we've familiar well, you know, women, you want to be spiritual, you don't wear slacks, you know. That's just you don't do it. That's the spiritual thing, you know. Then if you don't make it a law, I mean, some you don't wear, you don't wear denim, you don't wear <laughs> blue jeans. You know, the list of things that don't have anything to do with with righteousness, don't have anything to do with the Word of God. we not going to be put under bondage of those things. That's another type of legalism. It's, it's adding to the revealed Word of God and somehow believing that we're doing some type of a special favor to God or we're showing a higher degree of spirituality because we're just going above and beyond what's required. We're making our own little list. Now, some of those things people say there's a biblical warrant for. But we're not going, to, we're not going that way. Beware. Beware of this mindset to think that there is anything that we are going to do that is going to either bring us into a right relationship with God or improve our relationship with God. It's not going to happen. We are to be a community of the Word, to know what it says, but also to know what it doesn't say. To know what it does not address. God's Word is our only, but it is an all-sufficient guide. To living righteously, a community of the word. And finally, we see the third thing about this community is they become a community of worship. Look at verses thirty-two through thirty-nine. I'm not going to reread all this, but what do we find going on here? They're placing themselves under obligation to contribute one third of a shekel to the service of the house of our God, and then a list for the showbread. Then in verse thirty-four, we cast lots for the supply of wood for the among the priests and the Levites. And it talks about we're in verses 35 and following that we're going to bring the first fruits of our ground annually. We're going to bring to the house of the Lord God the firstborn of our sons. Verse 36. What is that? What are they doing here? Well, it comes to conclusion in verse 39 at the very end. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. What's taking place? Find a, comu- a community that is renewing its focus upon worship. It's worship. We are restoring those things within the context of this community that are of, of priority, that are of highest importance, and that means we are focusing afresh and anew on worship the way that God has ordained that we are to come into His presence, the way that God has ordained that we are to come into honor Him. It has to do with Him, it's about God worship of him. It's to acknowledge, for example, in verse thirty five and following that you bring about the first fruits of the ground. What's it doing? It's an expression of faith, Lord, we of thanksgiving to the Lord. We thank you for your provision. We bring to you the first fruits of our crops. Why? As a testimony of thanksgiving to your faithfulness, and rather than taking these things and consuming them upon ourselves, we're going to give them to you. It's an expression of faith. We believe you for what's coming above and beyond. The bring of, of the firstborn of our sons. What's that all about? Well, you remember what happened when the children of Israel left uh, Egypt? The plague, the final judgment upon the nation of Israel was what? Was this, the taking of the firstborn. What was the consequence of that? When they came out, when the children of Israel came out, He said to the people, listen, I, I took the firstborns of all the sons of Egypt. Yours were spared. So guess what? Your firstborn, they belong to me. They're mine. And so they're just saying here, Lord, we're just going to come acknowledge you. You're the Lord. By your grace. By your grace, you didn't take our firstborn. They, they lived. It's not about... How one feels. It's not about doing something our way. It's about honoring God as God in the concept of worship in the concept as a, of a community. It's God-centered. It is God-focused. It is God-honoring worship. That's what we're trying to do here. Again, we read this morning, the Reformed Baptist Church, worship. Worship. is going to be a priority. The church is first and foremost the church is first and foremost a worshiping community first and foremost we put anything else before that we're off track we are not exclusively a worshiping community but we are first and foremost a worshiping community we're not interested in designing our worship after our imagination or our desires we desire to worship in a way that presents that the majesty and the glory of the God before whom we come. It's about Him. Focusing on Him. It's easy. It's easy to get sidetracked in the secondary issues, isn't it? Things that don't have really anything to do with God. You know, I've become concerned when we start defining our worship styles with terminology like contemporary. What do you mean? Do I have to be contemporary to worship God all of a sudden? You know, we, we start defining it with the things that appeal to men without a thought to the glory and the majesty of God. You know, does God care whether it's contemporary or not? Jesus' words to Mary, which you remember the story there when Mary and Martha were hosting Jesus, and Mary's busy preparing everything, and I mean Martha's very busy about the house, getting things ready. And Mary comes and she sits at the feet of Jesus, and Martha rebukes Jesus and rebukes her sister and all this. And you know Jesus' words there, just a, he said, "Listen, one thing's needful. One thing's needful. And Mary, she's chosen the good part. What's what she choose?" choose, she chose worship to come before Him. This is what is needful. Worship. Worship the Lord. God moves in the context of a community. It's a community that is moved. Are we all ready to be a part of that? Other issues in your life that you need to deal with that you're not dealing with. I have to ask my heart that question every week: Am I a hindrance here? And it ought to be. A, it ought to be a safeguard to us from from sin. Just remember, when I was in Bible school down in Greenville, South Carolina, it was a very community minded group there. A small campus, about seventy five people, and I tell you, there was a real sense of as we would gather as a as the as the body of students and, and faculty, we would gather together and we would pray and asking for a move of the Spirit of God in our midst man. There was a real sense of of obligation and responsibility within the context to the community. And I can remember some times that that I would go from Greenville and go home and go home, you know, go for a vacation or something, you know, they kind of relax and get careless and, and I wouldn't be in real diligent in my quiet time. And I remember driving back from Gallatin to Greenville, South Carolina almost in tears thinking because here I'm coming back to and everything that is so spiritual and I'm not I want to be a part of a community of the community of the willing. That God can move within the context of a church. Individual revival is wonderful. What an opportunity I think we have here as a as a body of believers. To see to be a community where God is free to work, to move within our hearts and within the context of Cornerstone, where His Word becomes central. That's an evidence, isn't it? That? That's an evidence that God's at work when the Word of God becomes priority, and it's certainly more clear when we recognize that that worship is a priority. If you're not walking with God, you don't want to worship. Let that be our focus. Let's be a community of the will. Let's be a community of the word. Let's be a community of worship. Let's go, to the Lord, in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again to us. And look what, what a work you've done in days past, and you've stirred the hearts of your people. And we simply come this morning and in the words of one. Chorus from many years back, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Move in this work, move in our hearts. We see we seem to be at a place where we have opportunities that have not been before us before. A freedom to go, a freedom to grow. Lord, we want to be that. We want to be the group of the willing. Not just willing in the sense of thinking it's a good idea, but willing in the sense that we're paying the price. That we are diligent in prayer. That we are guarding our own personal hearts, our own personal walks. So that we come together, we can come together and minister and edify one another. So Lord, do Your work we ask. In Jesus' name.